Thank you so much for having me again. This is the, the second time I've been up to the harbor, and uh, my family and I, we love coming here. And so I was so excited when Neil called me and invited me to come up and, and speak again. So I'm really honored and, and blessed to be here and, and see you all uh, once again. Uh, invitations in general, whenever I'm invited to anything, uh, it's a special thing, right? When you're invited to a birthday party or a wedding, whatever it is, it's, it's special to be invited somewhere, right? I mean, somebody or some group of people, they want your presence. They're celebrating something, something is going on, and they want you to be there with them. They want you. And it always feels special to be invited somewhere. I feel special to be invited here. And, and the scripture we're actually going to look at today, it's appropriate. It's an invitation. It's an invitation from God. And so the scripture I want to share is in Isaiah chapter 55. And your Bible probably has a, a heading over that chapter that says an invitation to the thirsty or an invitation to abundant life or something like that if you turn there. Now, we know, of course, Isaiah didn't actually write that heading on the chapter, but it's an appropriate title for what we're going to look at today. And we'll see that, we'll see that in a minute. So I want to show you this invitation. I want to talk through it a little bit and also show you that it's an, it's an invitation with two problems. An invitation with two problems. Two major issues with the invitation that, that need to be addressed. So please turn with me if you have your Bibles. Uh, right to Isaiah 55. We're just going to read verses 1 through 7, Isaiah 55, 1 through 7. So listen carefully with me to what God's word says. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you knew not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. So you see very clearly, right at the get-go, this is an invitation. That word come is in there multiple times, right in the first few verses. And, and many of the other verbs in here are invitational in nature. God is calling the, the, the reader to something. And so a, a question, an initial question we might ask is, is what are these people invited to? You know, what, are, what are they being called to? Come to what? And if you read, look at, look at verses 2 and the first half of verse 3 again. Right? It says, the second half of verse 2, Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. Your soul will delight in the riches of fear. Give ear, verse 3, and come to me. Listening to God 
Coming to God is what precedes satisfaction and life. Then you go down to verses 6 through 7. It's very explicit. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn where? To the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. Turn where? To our God, for he will freely pardon now, seek here, seek doesn't mean to look around for something like hide-and-seek, like something's lost. Seek means to diligently pursue something or someone. And while he may be found, that brings up a sense of urgency to it, an immediacy to the call. Don't delay, do it now. So this invitation is to be with God. The invitation is to God himself. That's what these people are being called to. And this shouldn't be a really big surprise to us, right? If you've read through Scripture, we see this theme. We've even talked about it so far in this this worship service, right? We're called to God. The presence of God, being with God, that's all over Scripture. This is one of the central themes of all the Bible. From the very early chapters of Genesis, right, where we have humankind has fellowship with God, unbroken, unmediated relationship, with their creator, in whose image they're created. And then that relationship, because of sin, it's fractured, it's damaged, it's severed. And then the rest of Scripture, all the way through, is about restoring that. God's plan, in the bigger picture, it's to bring us back to himself. It's to restore that. So he can have us and we can have him. Go to BibleGateway.com or or Bible.cc, whatever your favorite online web tool is for for searching through Scripture. Search for phrases like, return to me, or presence, or dwelling. It's, It's all over Scripture. Too many references to talk about. The overwhelming emphasis is about the presence of God, the call to come to God, to be with him. What is heaven, after all? Heaven is just... All of God, the full, unmediated presence of God. You read Revelation 21, the very end, right? You don't get more end than that. The consummation of all things, the end of Revelation. And what does John say? He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will will be with them and be their God. The invitation is to God himself, to be with him. And we know David got this, right? King David. The one God himself says he's a man after his own heart. Right? God seeks God. David seeks God above, above all else. Right? Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this alone do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, that I may be with God all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Read through the Psalms. And whom does David take refuge? Whom does he seek? When he sins, whose presence does he not wish to be cast out from? In, In Psalm 51. It's from God's presence. David's after God. And God is inviting his people to himself And this sounds an awful lot like Jesus. In Matthew 11, verse 24, Jesus, what does he say? He says, come to me, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Again, in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. These people are called, they're invited to God himself to be with him. And I want to submit to you today, this morning, that this is where we all truly long to go. We all long for God. And if I had more time, I would prove this to you. But I just have a little bit. We all long for God. Notice, you know, by admission or not, we know somewhere in our heart of hearts, there is nothing of this world that can satisfy that for which we long. Has any experience thus far, any relationship, any material thing, anything, been fully satisfying to you? So you say, okay, I'm done. I, I don't need anything else. And it's like that in perpetuity till you die. Has that ever happened? Has anything, any person, any experience, anything at all, any job been completely satisfying. I'll bet that the things that get the closest to that are relationships. Right? But even if we're blessed with something like an enduring faithful marriage or a friendship, we still know, we still know it's temporary. One of these days it's going to end, either in sickness or death or people moving to other parts of the country, whatever it is, even the best of relationships come to an end. And even the best of relationships, the best of marriages, the best of friendships, they still experience deep hurt. There's still rejection. There's still pain in there. It's not perfect. Nothing is enough. Great job, great family, great home, great bank account, new car, whatever it is. Do they ultimately satisfy? There's always something else. Do we ever reach that point where we say it's enough? Are we always striving for something else, something beyond that? You know, when I was in high school, I couldn't wait to get to college. When I was in college, I couldn't wait to get out into the workforce. You know, when I was in the world, oh, I couldn't wait to get married. I can't wait till I have kids. I can't wait for this. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for my kids to grow up. You know, whatever it is, I'm always looking ahead to something. It's never enough. Nothing ever completely satisfies. Or even worse... We might think we get there. We finally reach that place where we say, this is all we need. This is what I've been after. This is what I've been striving for. I'm married. I have a beautiful wife now. One of three things can happen. Right? First, we realize, we can realize that this thing, this relationship, this job, whatever it is, we realize all our satisfaction, all our identity, all our value is bound up in it. And so we guard it, we hoard it with fear in our hearts, fear of losing it. It's the thing or the person or the circumstance that we have to have. Without him or her or it, everything is lost. Our whole world falls apart. And so our peace is robbed, we smother, we hoard, we become selfish in persevering that, which means everything to us. And in doing that, we lose it or him or her. 
Our blessings become our curses. Our gifts become our vices. Or we get to this great goal and the circumstances change. People move. People die. Cars break down. Jobs are lost. New cars come out. Something better comes out. There's some new experience, some new position that exceeds where we are. Where are we left when that happens? We're back at square one. Or third, maybe worst of all, we get there, we reach that goal, and it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Now, Tom Brady, he's the quarterback for the Patriots, and I make no pretense at following sports at all. But I know a little bit about him. And I understand he's not having the best season right now. But anyway, Tom Brady, quarterback to the Patriots. Right? You could argue that from a worldly point of view, here is a man who has everything the world could offer. He's in peak physical condition. He has a beautiful wife, a beautiful baby. He's respected, admired. He has all the celebrity and admiration and, and clout one could hope for. The top of his game, right? And he's a football player. He has money to burn. He just sold a place in Back Bay for like $10 million or something ridiculous like that. And he was in this interview with 60 Minutes some years back. And he said this to the interviewer. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean... Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this, isn't, this, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. We long for what cannot be found in this world. St. Augustine understood this. He wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Hundreds of years later, a mathematician, philosopher named Pascal says this. He says, what else does this craving, this striving, this lack of satisfaction with the world, what else does this say, this helplessness proclaim, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is an empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him. Yet this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. Even more recently, C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We long for God. Eternal, unchanging, perfect, sufficient, awesome, glorious God. The highest good in the universe. There's nothing better. No one better. He's the only one who can satisfy. In God, we're no longer bound to circumstance. He's, he's not going to change. He's perfect. Never dying, never forsaking, always loving. Do you long to be loved? Isn't that, isn't that one of the most fundamental needs of the human condition, to be loved, to be accepted? You long for God. You're not going to get more love, unconditional love, acceptance, than from God. 
God is who we long for. And God, in this passage, he's inviting us to himself. Throughout scripture, humankind is being invited to God. God invites us where we long to go, to him. And here's the first problem with this invitation. Whether we believe that we long for God or not, whether or not you believe what I just said, we're prone to go after other things. Counterfeits. Things other than God. Look at the rhetorical question in in the first half of verse 2. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? You know, 11 chapters earlier uh, in Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, verse 20, Isaiah is talking about those who labor and toil. They, they pour out silver, is the language he uses, for the sake of idols. For some absolute that is not God. And Isaiah says, such people feed on ashes. In other words, their, their toil, it, it's for nothing. It doesn't satisfy. It's not bread. It's not real food. It's not real drink. We tend to go after other things other than God. Even as Christians, I think if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, we spend a good amount of our time seeking the blessings rather than the blesser. Right? We're not after God as an end in himself. We go after what God can get us. Right? What haunts your thoughts day to day? To what ends are you constantly and most persistently striving? Is it for God to be with him? Is it for him? Or is it something else? However good, however noble that thing or person might be that you're striving for. Think about it relationally for a minute. Right? My wife, Catherine, the poor woman is used in just about every illustration I ever conceive of. When I preach, anyway, bless her, but my wife, Catherine, what if I sought relationship with my wife? Let's say when I met her, I found out that she was the heiress to a multi-million dollar fortune. And what if I sought relationship with her just for that money, for that inheritance? So I knew that when that came to... I'd be all set. Wouldn't have to work anymore. Could, you know, rock the Bentley, whatever it is. And I went after my wife. I went after Catherine and courted her just for that. Do I really love her? Am I really after her? What, what is our marriage, what is our relationship going to look like if I'm after what she can get me rather than for her herself? And if you're after just what God can get you, three things are going to happen. Not necessarily all at the same time or in this order, but three things are going to happen. You'll abandon him when you get what you want. If you're after a good job, once you get it, why do you need him anymore? Even more, you're wrongly going to think that you somehow earned it or deserved it. God is your cosmic vending machine. And he got you what you wanted, and now you have it, thanks. I'll let you know if I need anything else. Or, you'll abandon him when you don't get what you want. If God is merely your accomplice, 
You're going to be crushed when he betrays you, when he doesn't keep up his end of the bargain. Your relationship, it's, it's ultimately, it's manipulative. It's based on your performance. You're trying to put God in your debt. I'm not going to watch that dirty movie. I'm not going to look at pornography. I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to share Jesus with other people. Now you owe me. Look at all these good things I did. You owe me now, God. And when that doesn't happen, we're devastated. We don't get what we're after. We leave him. We leave the church. Hey, I tried this out. My life didn't get better. I didn't get what I wanted. I'm out of here. And worst of all, thirdly, if you're after just what God can get you and not God himself, you miss it. You miss the best. You miss the highest good, the greatest one, the best thing. Better than anything else that this world can offer. You miss him. Right, we all know that passage in Luke, Luke chapter 10. Right, Mary and Martha. Martha's off doing all this busy stuff. Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha gets ticked off about it, rebukes Mary. What does Jesus say to Martha? Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. Me. I'm better. God is better. He's better than anything. What do you like? What are you after? Love? Acceptance? Do you love nature? Are waterfalls beautiful? Do you love Hawaii? God's better. He's more beautiful. He invented Hawaii. He invented marriage. Right? He's the best. The giver is better than the gift. And it's ultimately, it's, it's idolatry to have any ultimate goal that is not God. There's a reason why the first commandment prohibits other gods. We're putting some other goal, some other good, whatever it is, ahead of God. And that's what we're after, not him. Again, Augustine says it this way. He says, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. We long for God, whether we know it or not, yet we allow ourselves to be deceived, to be distracted, to be fooled, and we go after, we chase after other things. And God invites us where we long to go, but we don't believe that we really want to go there. We, we actually believe, whether or not we would say it confessionally, we act like we don't believe that he's the highest good. We go after other things. That's the first problem with this invitation. What's the second problem with this invitation? See, God is inviting us where we long to go, to him. But how is that possible? How is it that we can seek the Lord? Now, I didn't read the whole chapter here, but in verses 8 through 11, God gives a, there's a clue in the text where God says in verse 8, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He says, my word accomplishes the purpose for which I sent it. His purposes are always fulfilled. So it'll happen, because God's behind it. But great, okay, good. But how? How does that work? Do you, have you noticed when, when we read this, the tension in this passage? We're told to buy 
without money. You who have no money, come and buy. Hey, John, you want to go to lunch? Yeah, sure, Brian, but I don't have any money. Okay, John, can you buy me lunch? That doesn't make sense, right? Buy without money and without cost. There's a sense that there's a cost involved here, but somehow we don't pay for it. And we're told that God will freely pardon when we seek him. How can God freely pardon? Do you know what that is? You know what it is when you pardon somebody? It means that justice isn't done. Evil gets off the hook. All your rebellion, all your sin, all your turning, whatever it is, if you're pardoned for that, right, you're off the hook. And that's not a good God. That's not a just God, a God who loves justice. So how does, how does it happen? Well, in the larger context of Isaiah, if we turn back just a few chapters in Isaiah, we see that our text today, it's preceded by the work of the suffering servant in chapters 52 and 53. This is the text that speaks of God's own Son, God in the flesh coming for us. If you have your Bibles, just turn to Isaiah 53. We'll read verses 5 and 6. It says, He, this servant, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is the one upon whom our sin and iniquities are laid. He pays the penalty. Jesus. He pays the penalty so we can be restored to God. We can buy without cost because he bought it for us. He can freely pardon because Jesus bore our iniquities. Justice has been done. Sin has been punished. Sin and death are overcome. Jesus took it upon himself for us. And so God can invite us where we long to go, to him. It's possible because of Jesus Christ and what he's done. That's how this can happen. That's how that second problem is solved. That's why all we need to do read through this passage, is come. Look at the type of people that are invited. They're thirsty. You know, thirst, it's a a life-threatening, urgent need. A human body cannot live without water for very long. And when you're thirsty, if you've ever been in that situation, it's pretty much all you can think about, especially if you don't know when you're going to drink again. I'm so thirsty. It just occupies all your thought. It's an urgent need. And these people have no resources. They're helpless. They have no money. That's who's invited. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ through and through. We bring nothing to the table. Nothing at all. We deserve nothing but God's wrath and punishment. But Jesus takes that wrath for us. And we add nothing to what he's done. It's not Jesus plus something. 
right? We make the confession, okay, Jesus, I believe you, you know, I confess my sins, blah, blah, blah. Now I've got to be really good. I've got to add something to what Jesus has done to get in God's good graces, to get in his favor. No, it's done. Jesus has paid it all. We add nothing to the cross. And so, because of Christ, because of the cross, his death and resurrection for us, God can invite us where we long to go, to him. That's how that second problem is solved. But you see, these two problems, one of them is ours. You know, one of them is solved by God. But what's required of us? Is being good enough? Having something that we can hold over God, put him in our debt, so he, see, he owes us something? No. We just receive the invitation. We go to him. What does that look like, practically speaking? What does that look like to turn from sin and turn to God? Well, look at, look at the text. You listen to God. You hear him. Hear this invitation. Look at verse 2. Listen, listen, the text says. Literally, that says, listen listeningly. In other words, give all of your attention, undivided attention to listening. Bend all your thought on hearing God and this invitation. Verse 3 repeats it. Give ear to me. Listen. Four times we're told to listen. How do we listen to God? One of the ways primarily we listen through his word and through hearing his word proclaimed. If you're not paying close attention to your Bible regularly, you are not listening to God. Full stop. Yes, we listen in prayer. We listen in quiet. Have you ever actually had quiet recently? I I, I don't know that I have. Have you ever just sat quietly in prayer, maybe with your Bible open, and just sat and just listened? What, What does the Lord have to speak? You learn about him. You learn, what does he like? What does he dislike? What's his history? What are his plans for the future? This primarily, again, it's done through his word. We also learn through experience, through walking with him. Talk with him in prayer. You go after God, you, you, you do the things that he does. Align yourself with his purposes. Don't set for yourself a goal and then ask God to come along. Align yourself with what he's doing. Turn from sin and to God. As the text says, forsake your wicked way and thoughts. Listen, if I was a smoker and I found out that my wife-to-be hated smoke, guess what I need to do if I want to be with her? I need to forsake the things that keep me from her. In this case, smoking. In God's case, we need to turn from sin. And there's an important distinction here. I'm going to say this a couple times. Don't forget this. Remember verse 1. We offer nothing. We simply come. This repentance, this turning, this is the evidence that we've done so. That we've made that decision. That's what that word repentance, when you read it in the New Testament, it literally means a changing of the mind. You no longer think of sin and God the same way. And you've turned from one and towards the other. This is what we had this series in James all through the summer. He says, faith without works is dead, right? 
What you do is the evidence of, of what you believe, the decision you've made to go after God. Our turning from unrighteousness isn't how we get to God. That's accomplished by Christ. We've established that. It's the symptom of the fact that we're after him. So we get involved in what he's doing. We do the things he does. My wife, when I met her, she was a runner. I did not like running. I hated running. But guess what? I became a runner when I met her. Why? Did I become a runner for running's sake? I mean, running's good, you know, cardio, all the rest of it, you know, it's good to exercise. Yeah, that was, was a nice bonus. But I took up running for her. I wanted to be with her. So, you know, we read the Word of God. It's great. It's edifying and all this. But ultimately, we do it for Him. Why do we come to church? It's for God. It's not to throw God a bone. Like, hey, look, I'm coming to church. I did my thing. Thank, you know, we're, we're, we're here for Him. This whole Christian project that we're involved in, it's about God. It's about seeking after Him. God is a God of mercy, so we're merciful. He's a self-disclosing God, a God who reveals himself to people, so we reveal him to others. We behave the way, we like the things, we align ourselves with, with God. And so what can we expect when we, when we do this? Briefly, just in closing, we see some more of this in our text, um, in the verses I didn't read. When we seek God first, when we accept this invitation by grace to himself, what does the text say? Well, in verse 5, right, we saw that we're, we're a witness to the other nations. We're a witness to God. And later in, in verses 12 through 13, we see the striking image of our joy and our peace, all nature responding along with us. And how does it close at the, at the very end of this chapter? Ultimately, it's for God's renown. It's for his glory. God is glorified when we're after him above all else. And everything else, everything else comes together and lines up. All those ducks line up in a row of our life. God is the only ultimate good that we can seek that doesn't distort the rest of our life. If you go after money beyond anything else, your life is going to fall apart in some place. You might get money, but marriage, relationships, your health, whatever it is, it's going to distort your life. But if you go after God first, if you get that right, everything else falls into place. What does Jesus say in in Matthew 6? Seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness. And all these things, all your needs, everything else, is going to be given to you as well. The difference is that it's all gravy at that point. You, you, don't, you don't have to have anything else. The only thing you have to have is God. You're free. You can give anything away. You're not bound to anything or anyone to any circumstance. It transcends all of that. And you're free because you're, you're ultimately you're after him. Everything else doesn't, doesn't really matter. Ultimately. Right? Of course it matters if a loved one dies, that sort of thing. But your life doesn't completely fall apart because you're after God beyond anything else. The rest of your life lines up. You know, I, this summer I made the mistake of fancying myself a carpenter of some flavor. <clears throat> and so I took it upon myself to build a shed 
in my backyard. And I started in like mid-April, I think. <clears throat> and I probably just finished like a week ago, okay? To give you a sense of, you know, my skill in that area. So I tried to build this shed. And <clears throat> the first thing I did, obviously, was lay down the foundation for the shed, right? I framed up the deck. I got the posts in the corners and dug these holes and, and all this. And I did my best to make sure that that frame was square, it was level, and all of that. And I failed at that. It was not level, it was not square. And I built this shed on top of that foundation. And if you go, if you look at the shed, it's still standing today, by God's grace, but if you go there, if you look at it, it looks all right. But if you hold a level up to it, or a square, or anything like it, it's just, it's a train wreck, right? It's a complete train wreck. And we were making weird cuts and, and, and all this just to get this thing up. Everything else that was built upon that foundation was messed up too because the foundation wasn't right. First things first, I didn't get that right, and so everything that hung on that, that depended on that, wasn't right. It was distorted. So we're called to God. God invites us where we long to go, to Him. We have to get that right first. Or everything else that we build in our life is going to be distorted. It's not going to be right. It's going to be shaky. It's not going to be level. And ultimately, you know, we're going to realize at some point as we do that, you realize God is all you need. God is all you need. So as we, as we respond today, to this invitation from God. You know, our outward actions may not change. You may still go to church, tell others about Jesus, avoid sin, read the word, all that, and that's great. But our hearts should change. We should be realigned to the ultimate purpose for why we do those things. We do them because we're after God. He's the best there is. We're responding to his gracious, freely given invitation to come to him that was made possible by what Jesus has done, not on what we do. It's based on what Jesus has done. God invites us where we long to go. Or maybe you're not even at that place yet. You don't even know if you're really after God or if he's really all that we're saying he's cracked up to be. God is still inviting you right now where you long to go. Seek him out. Come and see. Get to know him. Read his word. Examine what he has done to get you back, to restore you to the, that which you were created for. Giving his son for you. While you hated him, while your back was to him, he gave his son for you. So you could be restored. So he could invite you where you long to go, to him. So take that invitation today. Let's respond to that. Let's repent of this idolatry of seeking other things, however good, and get our first things first. Let's lay that foundation and receive this invitation to us. God is inviting us where we long to go. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word, Lord God. Thank you, God, that you love us that much to reveal yourself to us, to invite us to yourself, that you long for us, that you want to restore us to relationship with you, Lord God. And Lord, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death and resurrection, for your son who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died so we could be with you. The ultimate end of our lives and our existence, to be with you forever. Thank you, God, for that gracious invitation. And Lord, would you help us to respond to that. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Reveal to us, Lord God, where are our idols? What are we seeking after? What, what good are we placing above you, Lord, the ultimate good? And help us to repent, to turn from that, Lord, to turn from that, to turn to you. You alone are where we long to go. You are the one we long to be with. So help us, Lord God. May we, may we do that now and experience that blessing of your presence and all that comes with it. Thank you, Father, for this time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.